So if you have your Bibles with you, please meet me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. It says this, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came to you with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext of greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you, now, for you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are, that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets who drove us out and displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always, to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Last fall, the Christian news source, Christianity Today, released a podcast series called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. This podcast follows the story of Mars Hill Church, a non-denominational church based just outside of Seattle, Washington, led by the pastor and eventual celebrity, Mark Driscoll. The church was founded upon Christian principles, but but also tried to be different in many ways. They were specifically trying to break down the norms of what a church was supposed to look like and tried to develop a reputation of being not your parents' church. Mark Driscoll, pastor of the church, was the man to do that very thing as his methods of leading were very brash and abrasive, helping facilitate this punk rock mentality that the church was going for. The church itself as soon as it came into conception, began to grow like wildfire, growing in both size and number, 
as they created more services and then eventually even more campuses to accommodate the people that were attending the church. At the peak of their popularity, Mars Hill had an average Sunday attendance of over 12,000 people over 15 campuses. On the outside, the church had seemed like it was at its healthiest, like it was at its peak. But on the inside, the church was rotten as many people were being spiritually abused inside of the church as they ignored the huge character flaws inside of their pastor and leader, Mark Driscoll. This led the church to fall almost completely overnight when the elder board had asked Driscoll to step down in October of 2014. After that, the brand of Mars Hill was tarnished and all campuses would close their doors and shut down by the end of the year. The heart and center of the Mars Hill leadership team was not the gospel. Mars Hill leadership had systematically raised Mark Driscoll as the center of their church's hierarchy, which would be the cause of their eventual downfall. While there were good intentions within some people inside of the church, and many people would come to faith in Christ through the ministry of Mars Hill, the church itself was never sustainable because of their celebrity pastor being the center of their church. So this evening, we're going to be continuing in our study of the, birth, of the book of 1 Thessalonians, starting with the first part, or the first part of chapter 2. We will be looking at Paul's memories of his ministry to the Thessalonian church that uh, that we saw as a snippet back in Acts chapter 17. And the goal of our study this evening will be to understand how and why the gospel is the heart of Christian ministry. We will look to Paul's example of how he ministered to the Thessalonian church and see how we can and why we need to make the gospel the center of our own lives and ministry here at Hoylake Evangelical Church. So if you're following along with me, I'm going to be starting in verse 1 of chapter 2 where it says this, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext of greed. God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So when Paul and Silas were original, when they originally had brought the gospel to Thessalonica, They were only able to spend a couple of weeks in the city before being chased out by those who opposed the spreading of the gospel. Paul's conditions for proclaiming the gospel weren't at all in his favor. But Paul remained faithful to the truth of the gospel that he based his his entire ministry around. 
So if you were taking notes, the first point that I would like to draw out of today's text is this. The gospel is not to be added to or changed. In first century Roman cities, there was often a vast amount of traveling philosophers, magicians, and religious enthusiasts who made their livelihood from public teachings. They would mesmerize the crowds with their seemingly well-thought-out logic or tricks in order to gain power, money, fame, and glory. On issues that were being debated, they would often take both sides of the argument depending on which side would benefit them in the context that they were speaking to. These people were as nasty as they come, leeching off the weak-willed people in each city that they would preach in, all to make a couple of bucks for themselves. So when Paul and Silas left the city of Thessalonica and after the swift persecution in Acts chapter 17, many of their opponents started to spread false rumors about Paul and Silas and who they were, saying that they were con artists who only ever preached their message in order to receive the riches and fame that come from this sort of dishonest lifestyle. So in this part of 1 Thessalonians 2, we see Paul defend his ministry. And he also is reminding the church of how he and Silas had acted among them, stomping out all the rumors that had been spreading throughout the city. Paul tells the church that his preaching was never out of an attempt to deceive, but always out out of a desire to honor God. Wouldn't it, have been, wouldn't it have been much easier for Paul to change a bit of his message in order to suit the people that he was proclaiming to, in order to completely avoid the persecution that he was suffering through? This would have made his whole life and his teaching career so much easier if all he had done was change it. I mean, Paul himself was a gifted teacher, It would have been so easy for him to think about the context that he was in and change a little bit of his message in order to appeal to the audience that he was speaking to. I'm sure it would have given Paul a nice break just to do it in one city, just to change a little bit in order to have a nice night, a night where he could sleep well and have a lot of money and enjoy the place that he was in and really indulge in the worldly, the worldly, uh, things in, in each city that he was in. But even though Paul could have been tempted to do this, he could have changed his message, but he refused to because he stayed to the truths of the gospel. Paul and Silas stuck to their guns and preached the honest and truthful gospel even in the midst of its unpopularity. Paul's goal is always to please God with his ministry and with his preaching, which means that along the way, he is going to have to deal with the unpopularity of the gospel. Uh, He's going to have to deal with his unpopularity of the gospel. Sorry, I've lost my place. (laughs) Um, Yes, uh, there it is. 
Although it may have been tempting to change part of God's teaching to embrace the culture, Paul stays anchored in the word of God, knowing that it is the foundation for a life honoring to God. The the desire or temptation to change or add to the gospel is not a temptation that only Paul had to deal with. Every Christian since the beginning of the church has had to deal with this temptation in some form or another, whether you've realized it or not. This is because the gospel itself will always stand as countercultural in some aspect to the secular world. We as members of this church live in a theological tension where we have the truths of the gospel knowing that we are redeemed in Christ and that we belong to his kingdom, but yet we still live inside of this broken world that is hostile to Christ and the gospel. So what are we to do? I will tell you very simply, we should not embrace the culture to the point where it is adding to or changing what the truth of the gospel is. We can see many prime examples of, and please note my air quotes here, Christians who are actually false teachers because they have added to or changed the gospel for their own benefit. They disguise themselves as Christians speaking vaguely half-truths that sound vaguely Christian, but in reality are incredibly far from the truth. Remember, Scripture itself says that Satan will come as an angel of light. These false teachers have come to deceive us. So, I I just want to talk to you about a specific example of somebody in our modern world who has taken the gospel, who has added it and changed to it for their benefit. I want to talk to you about a man, a man named Joel Osteen. So for those of you who don't know who Joel Osteen is, he is a false teacher who is the poster child for the prosperity gospel. For, um, he is a false teacher who is the pastor at the largest church in the United States called Lakewood Church. The church, again, using air quotes here, meets in an old sports arena that allows about 45,000 attendees every week with over 20 million people watching their services online every month. Sounds like a pretty thriving church, right? But what makes Joel Osteen a false teacher is that he has changed the gospel that he preaches. He has made the gospel to be all about material prosperity. That God will bless believers with material wealth in this world only if they have more faith in God. His preaching is filled with self-help tactics which encourage the listener to break through their own barriers inside of their minds so that God can do work. This makes Joel Osteen seem more like an inspirational life coach rather than a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He completely omits sin and repentance from his, mes- from his messages and instead speaks only about happiness and success. So, how can we avoid adding to or changing the gospel and coming into some sort of false gospel? 
Well, tonight, I would simply love to suggest to you that all you need to do is focus on the basics. The gospel is this, that we are sinners separated from our God and creator because of our sin. Out of love, God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, die a death that was unworthy for him, and then rise from the dead and ascend to heaven and sit at the right hand of God the Father. We then must repent of our sins, put our faith in Christ as our Savior, and we will be saved. That is the gospel that has saved us. Christ died for our sins so that we may be reconciled to God. Not Christ died for our financial prosperity. Not Christ died so that we may live a pleasant life here on earth. But that Christ died for our sins. Focus on the gospel. For it is perfect in all of its ways and does not need to be added to or changed. Continuing on, In verse 7, it says, But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We We work night and day that we might not be a burden to you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Paul continues on in this section defending the ministry that he and Silas had done among the people, saying that the work that they, that they were doing was solely out of love. If we know that the gospel is at the heart of Christian ministry and that the gospel is not to be added to or changed just as we had discussed, then we see here that the work of Christian ministry must be done out of love. This is the second point that I would like to draw out of, this, out of the text this evening. Christian ministry and the sharing of the gospel is to be done out of love. Now for many of you tonight, you may be thinking to yourself, of course this is how ministry is supposed to be done. Of course you would be correct. We cannot have a faithful gospel-centered ministry without having love be one of the primary motivations behind our ministry. The gospel itself is a gospel of love. The coming of Jesus Christ to earth to live a perfect life and to die on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins is one of the biggest examples of divine love that we can fathom. So it would be seemingly obvious to know that Christian ministry is to be saturated with love. But love is often such a big concept that is so simple, but yet so profound. While it may be easy for us to know that we should love in the intellectual sense, it can be difficult to know how we are supposed to love practically. 
But what is wonderful for us about that is that Paul gives us some very practical applications of what a loving ministry is like here in this text through two brief but profound analogies talking about what a ministry of love looks like. The first analogy we see is Paul comparing himself to a mother taking care of her own children. Specifically, how a mother shares her own life with her children and is gentle to them. Unlike the traveling philosophers and religious enthusiasts that we talked about earlier, who simply made connections with the people of the city so that they could benefit financially, Paul created deep and loving connections and relationships with the people that were, that were motivated by love and humility. What I love about this analogy is that Paul contrasts his mother-like love to his apostolic authority in verse 6. As someone in authority, he could have demanded for himself extravagant treatment from the people that he was leading as many selfish leaders do. Instead, Paul does the opposite, giving up himself to the people and sharing his life with them just as a mother does with her own children. We then as Christians need to be aiming need to be aiming to do that very same thing in doing life together and sharing our lives with people both inside the church and outside of the church. For many of us there exists multiple universes in our lives. Um, we, ha- we have this church universe where you interact with everybody sitting here inside this building on a Sunday or on a Tuesday or on a Friday. You're, you're interacting with them and doing specific types of activities. We come here to gather to worship. We sing together. We pray together. Um, but maybe you interact with these people outside of the church as well. Maybe you gather together for a meal every so often or do, a, do some sort of activity like going for a walk together. That's that universe, and you interact with those people in a very specific way. But then you also have your worldly universe, the people, the interaction with people who are non-Christians, who are outside of this church. You interact with them differently, that you spend, you, these, these are the people you could be spending your Friday nights or your weekends with, your coworkers or other students that you're in class with. Without really thinking about it, we start to interact with both of these groups in different ways and create separate universes inside of our lives. But we as Christians should actually be seeking to merge those universes into one and interact with people the same way. Now, how do we merge those universes? It's really easy for me to talk about hypothetically, but how do we do it practically? Well, the easiest, easiest advice I could give you is start inviting your non-Christian friends along with you when you are doing something with your Christian friends and vice versa. Uh, are you going to see a movie next week with your, non-Christian fr- or with your non-Christian friends? Bring somebody along from the church. Are you having some of your Christian friends over for dinner? Add a couple more plates to the table. Invite some of your non-Christian friends so they are exposed to what Christian community is like and you can share your lives with them and as well as the gospel with them in that way. It's 
a lot easier than we would think to merge those universes. All we need to do is step out in our faith and start inviting people to those things, including inviting people to church. Very simple one, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very practical way for us to be able to merge our universes and share our lives and share this ministry with the people around us. The second analogy that Paul uses in this section is that of a father. He describes how Paul and Silas exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. As a father teaches his children, corrects them when they have done wrong, and encourages them when they have done right, Paul acted in the same way towards the Thessalonian church, towards this group of new believers. All of this exhortation, encouragement, and correction were done on the basis of love. We live in a very interesting cultural moment because Western culture has struggled recently to define what love really is, what it means to love somebody. What it means to love someone has changed from this basis of exhortation, encouragement, and correction, as Paul would define it, to an overall acceptance and encouragement of whatever the individual believer thinks is right. The world says right now that love is about acceptance and celebration. But there is no correction or rebuke allowed inside of that definition. Our culture now thinks of correction and rebuke as unloving. It has been deemed unloving because it does not celebrate a person's personal choices. So although exhortation, er, exhortation encouragement, and correction are all fundamental aspects of love. We cannot get rid of these three aspects of love and still call it love, frankly. So they they are essential to what love is. So all of you listen tonight, I want to encourage you, do not fall victim to the culture's definition of love. The love that worldly culture preaches is weak and unsustainable. It lacks power and wisdom, turning away from God in his true love toward sin and self-righteousness. Instead, lean into Christ's love. His love is never-ending love filled with true grace, true justice, and true peace. Open the scriptures for yourself and see the love of God that will be greater than anything the culture could offer to us. The gospel that we know and hold dearly is a gospel of love. Finally, let us look at the final section of this passage beginning in verse 13. It says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. 
For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Wrapping up this section of the chapter, Paul rejoices in the fact that the Thessalonians were able to come to salvation through God's grace. We see Paul attribute the credit for their conversion not to his own teaching, but to God, as God's word is what is being preached. What we have here is one of the many divine mysteries of Christianity that truly shows us God's glory and brings him glory. While we are the ones responsible and are called to actually do ministry, it is God that works through us and does his work through us as vessels. This is my third and final point for this evening. The gospel, which is the word of God, is at work in those who believe. If we know that the gospel is the center of Christian ministry, and we know that it is God moving through us when ministry is carried out, then we can know that the gospel is at work inside of the believer. What is amazing about this reality is that once you become a believer, once you have given your life to Christ, the gospel never ceases to work inside of you. Even in the darkest parts of your life, even when you feel furthest away from God, even when life seems like it has gotten the best of you, you are never away from God. God is indwelling inside of you and working inside of you. When someone becomes a believer, the Holy Spirit indwells inside of that believer permanently. Believers are no longer in the flesh as we see in Romans 8 and see how it describes it, but instead the Spirit of God dwells in us. The Thessalonians knew this truth for themselves as they suffered intense persecution from their fellow countrymen. And Paul encourages them to keep their faith in their troubled time because God is constantly at work inside of them. Another specific person from Christian history that I look up to when thinking about continuing on when times are difficult is the missionary William Carey. William Carey was a missionary to India in the year 1793. Over the course of his mission's work, Carey suffered many tragedies along the way as he attempted to bring the gospel to a strange land to which he described himself as a stranger in a strange land. Very quickly after arriving in India with his family, his missionary partner deserted him and left Carey and his family all alone. Carey would write this. He said, I am in a strange land alone with no Christian friend, a large family, and nothing to supply their wants. Very soon after getting to India, sickness would start to overtake him and his family. 
Carrie himself would contract malaria, which is difficult enough to improve on back in the 1790s. But his five-year-old son, Peter, would soon die of dysentery. And then his wife, Dorothy, would have a mental breakdown as her mental health deteriorated quickly. She suffered from delusions and would eventually have to be confined to a room and physically constrained. Carrie wrote this about his experience. He said, This is indeed the valley of the shadow of death to me. But I rejoice that I am here notwithstanding, and God is here. It would be another seven years of on-field mission work before Carrie would see his first convert in December of 1800. Despite the onslaught of suffering that he had gone through, Carrie knew that God was with him and that gave him the strength to persevere. One of the greatest benefits about having faith in Christ is knowing that God will never leave us. Sure, we will face times of trouble and sorrow. That much is guaranteed. But the Lord will never abandon us in those valleys. He will never let Christ not be a part of our lives. During our darkest times, when we are in the deepest pits, and when we feel like we are completely lost and hopeless, God is still with us. The gospel is forever working inside of the hearts of those who believe in him. So if you are a Christian tonight, I would implore you, lean into this truth. Let the gospel of Jesus Christ be your refuge and your hiding place. Run to God in times of, in times of trouble and times of peace, for he will never abandon you. And if you do not know Christ tonight, if you have not given your life to him and made him the Lord of your life, then I would encourage you to seek after Christ and make his life the center of yours. I promise that that you will find no greater joy in finding redemption in Christ and making the gospel the center of your life. Amen. Let us pray.